0: The title of our sermon this morning is Love Without Hypocrisy. Love Without Hypocrisy. This is part two, Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 13. So now in our ongoing week by week exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Paul in this letter so far has unpacked for us the gospel of our salvation. Paul has been unpacking the gospel. Uh, Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are of all people most immeasurably blessed immeasurably, infinitely blessed. Uh, We don't always in this life understand that or acknowledge that, or even uh, able to fully fathom the depths to which we have been blessed by the gospel, but we have been blessed, immeasurably blessed by the gospel. While there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in union with Jesus Christ. And while we've been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness now and into the kingdom of the son of his, uh, of his love for now, we still continue to live and labor in a world that is under the sway of the wicked one. We've been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, but we still live in a world that is under the sway of the wicked one. For now, we continue to live and battle with the body of this death that has been corrupted by sin. The implication of that contrast, the implication of that simultaneous reality is that, uh, We're going to have a lifetime of conflict in the experience of the Christian. The implication of that living contrast between the new man being renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him and that old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, the result of that dichotomy, if you will, is a lifetime of conflict in the experience of the Christian. A lifetime of mortifying the flesh. A lifetime of putting off the old man with his deeds. A lifetime of resisting temptation from the world. In the words of Romans 12, a lifetime in opposition to the spiritual forces arrayed against us that would press us into the mold or into the pattern of this evil age. A lifetime of being transformed by the renewing of our mind, applying the word of God to your thoughts, your words, your actions, and putting on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. Our real enemy in this conflict does not come against us, brothers and sisters, with brute force. Uh, If he did, he would easily overcome us, right? He's stronger than we are. His aim isn't merely in that sense to kill the body. The aim of our enemy is to destroy our soul. And if he's going to do that, he does that through a, a devastating propaganda machine, not on the field of some physical battleground, but on the battleground of your heart on the battleground of your own mind. He'll bombard you with temptations to worldliness. So you must stop allowing yourself, in the words of Romans chapter 12 verse one, you must stop allowing yourself to be conformed to this world. He'll bombard you with worldly philosophy. He will bombard you with worldly thinking, worldly values. And so you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the way that you think. The battleground takes place in your heart and in your mind and only then externally. We must endure in faith. We must endure in faithfulness until the end. And God himself is the one who preserves us. But we must employ the means of our preservation that God has appointed. And we must be in that fight, in that battle, in that ongoing conflict, we must be entirely consecrated to him as living sacrifices to our God. On the basis of the mercy that has been shown to us, on the basis of the mercies of God poured out on us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must be entirely consecrated to him in the pursuit of these things, which is our reasonable service of worship. That's why we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. That's why we are stop ourselves from being conformed into the patterns of this evil age. That's why we pursue transformation by the renewing of our minds through his word, by his spirit. It's why we engage in that battle and that conflict. Now by the grace of God, as our enemy assaults us and as we face this conflict in the Christian life, that will persist until the Lord calls us home uh, or until he comes back. While we engage in that ongoing conflict by the grace of God, we're not alone. Praise the Lord, right? By the grace of God, we're not alone. He has not left us orphans. John 14, he has come to us. He's visited us with his spirit. You're indwelt with the spirit of God. And we're not isolated individuals. He has united us to his son. And by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been brought into communion with one another. He has placed us in his body. He has placed us in the church. So we have him, we have his spirit, we have the church, amen? Amen. The church, however, brothers and sisters, is no place for human pride. We are sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No place for human pride. So Paul begins his exhortations in Romans chapter 12, as they relate to our relationships in the body, Paul begins those exhortations with this one. Let no one here think of himself more highly than he ought to think. It starts there. Our service in the body begins there. This is no place, there's no place here for human pride. Let no one here think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but let each one serve the body, and let him serve the body with the gifts and graces that God has poured out on him for his service of the body. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The manner in which we are then to undertake that service to the Lord's church, that service to the Lord through his body, the manner in which we are to undertake that service begins with love. Love characterizes it all, doesn't it? If you boil down our relationships to one another, even our relationships to the Lord, it's all fulfilled namely in this, that you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is likened to the first, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. It all boils down to love. So Paul begins Romans chapter 12 then with this exhortation to love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, love, noun, without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. Paul is referring to a sincere love, an earnest love, an unfeigned love, an unfaked love, an unblemished love, a love that stands the test of time because it's true, a love that holds up under the heat of adversity. Because it's sincere, a love that endures under the pressure of trial and tribulation. To borrow, the language, uh, to borrow language from James, if you have bitterness in your heart, if you have self-seeking in your hearts, then don't boast about your love. Don't say that you love that person when you, when you harbor bitterness or self-seeking in your heart. Don't boast and lie against the truth. That so-called love does not descend from above, but rather is earthly, sensual, demonic for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. James says, you say you're wise, prove it by your conduct. We could apply the same concept to love. You say that you love your brother, well then show your love by your conduct. Show your love. The love that is from above is first pure. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 12. It abhors that which is evil, it clings to that which is good. So the love that is from above, that love which is Christ-like, that love which is authored in your heart as a fruit of the Spirit, that kind of love from above is first pure. Then it's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, and James says, without hypocrisy. It's sincere. Now we've described that kind of biblical love in this way. Love is the heart of, Focused upon its object with affectionate warmth or delight. Love includes affection, doesn't it? Love includes delight in its object. Love is the heart, not just the mind, but the mind and the heart. Focused upon its object with affectionate warmth or delight. Such that, such that love thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to its object's biblical and spiritual good. I know that's a mouthful, but it's not easy to give you a three-word definition of love, amen? (laughs) But that's what love essentially is. That's, I think, a good description of biblical love. Paul says, let our love be without hypocrisy. When you say, I love you, that's what you're to mean, When you say, I love you, that's the kind of love that you're to exemplify, not merely in words, but with actions, right? Let us not love merely in word, let us love in deed. Let that love be without hypocrisy. Now, the exhortations that Paul gives here for sincere love, a love that is without hypocrisy, those exhortations are moral or ethical in their character. Verse nine, we love with a sincere love by first abhorring the evil and by clinging to good, by abhorring evil and clinging to good. And by opening his list of exhortations with this contrast between good and evil, Paul is saying that a sincere love, a sincere love for your brother, is decidedly moral. A sincere love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy, from the stench of hypocrisy, is a love that conforms to the moral and ethical character of God, or the moral and ethical character of God's law. God's law is a transcript of his own nature, a transcript of his own character. And so our love is going to exemplify that. Our love is going to conform to the character or nature of God's law. A genuine and biblical love can be measured by its moral and ethical conduct. Romans chapter 13, verse eight, he who loves another has fulfilled the law right? It conforms to the moral or ethical character of the law. So what does that mean in practice? Well, don't tell me you love me when you're sinning against me, right? I shouldn't say I love you when I'm sinning against you. I shouldn't say I love you and sin in telling you I love you. I shouldn't allow love to be hypocritical. It needs to be sincere love. And if it's sincere love, it's going to conform to the character of God's own law. Love without hypocrisy. We are to abhor with a holy hatred all that is evil. And we are to cling with a life and death earnestness to that which is good. Then, and I would submit to you, only then will your thoughts, words, and actions as they concern your brother or sister in the body of Christ, only then will your thoughts, words, and actions be characterized by sincere love. Notice with me, the character or the quality of your love isn't determined by the fervency of your feelings. That's important. (laughs) And and we we constantly need to check ourselves against that truth. The quality or the character of your love isn't determined by the fervency of your feelings or the fervency of your emotions. Love is defined and governed. I know it doesn't sound glamorous, but that's the reality of it. Love is defined. Love is governed by the word of God. Love will adhere to the character of God's law. He has given us his law, brothers and sisters, to tell us what love looks like. We have God's law to tell us what love is to be. And he has given us his son to show us what God's love or what love is to be. Your love may be free from the stain of hypocrisy only as your thoughts, words, and actions toward your brother are free from the stain of sin and consistent with the love that Christ has shown us, demonstrated toward us in his sacrifice on the cross. So all of the law then is summed up in this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, although this definition of love would apply to any of our relationships, Paul has, in Romans chapter 12, Paul has particularly in mind the relationships that we share in the body of Christ in the church. So although that quality or that character of love should be applied to anyone that we know, uh, the Bible would even say we're to love our enemies. So although that kind of love would apply to anyone that we know, it is particularly applied here to the love that we are to have for those relationships that we enjoy in the church, the relationships between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And so Paul then says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. I was talking about how we are to love one another love without hypocrisy Abhor that, which is evil cling to that, which is good. And verse 10 character of that love, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Now Paul uses a term in verse 10 that you're likely familiar with. It's the Greek word phila Delphia. Philadelphia, right? There's a city by that name in Pennsylvania uh, that doesn't quite live up to its name, right? There's a city in Pennsylvania with that name. Philadelphia. It's a compound word from phileo meaning to love and adelphos referring to a brother, brotherly love. The word here, very commonly used, of the love that was shared between natural born brothers in a physical family. It what the word was most commonly used for. The natural love, The innate love, you could say, the inherent love that you should have for the members of your own family, the members of your own household, that love that would be shared between brothers. Kids, you should act toward your siblings with Philadelphia, with Philadelphia. You should act toward your siblings with brotherly love. Paul uses, Paul uses this term here in verse 10 as that eminent form of familial love that is to be given to your spiritual brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in the household of God. That kind of natural familial love should characterize the love that you have for one another. That's what Paul is essentially saying. And there's much here that's important for us to understand. When we understand that kind of love, we understand more how we are to love one another in the body of Christ. And that's not merely semantics. There's a reality to that. Right? There's a there's a natural quality to that kind of love in the body of Christ for several reasons. And notice, notice This is not a love that is merely enjoined or required by circumstance. We're not to love one another just because we're in the church together. Um, This is a love that refers to an innate or natural love that is experienced by our relationship to one another. In one sense, it is natural to our relationship. We should love one another in this way. Uh, I know you've you've heard that before when you uh, run into somebody, if, if you're a genuine Christian and dwelt by the spirit, you run into somebody you've never met before. They're from a church across the country. They're here on vacation. You sit down and talk and it's like you've known each other all your lives, right? And you might say to yourself, there's a kindred spirit there, a kindred spirit. That's true. You're indwelt by the spirit, one faith, one baptism. They're indwelt by the spirit, one faith, one baptism. And you meet together and you start talking. And it's like this kindred spirit, this natural Love that exists between the members of God's household, the members of the body. That's natural, isn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's not formal. It's not superficial or official. It's not court-ordered love, right? It's not love in law. It's, it's love. It's not simply liking one another because we're in the church together. It's a sincere love. It's a natural love. Philadelphia goes well beyond what is superficially true. It goes well beyond a superficial or a formal or an official kind of love. It's that kind of love between brothers, right? That kind of love, that kind of superficial love won't last. Won't last. That kind of superficial love will not endure. It will abandon you in the heat of adversity. It will abandon you when the circumstances go against their preferences or opinions or thoughts or feelings or desires, right? When that kind of love is confronted by a strong personal desire, love is out the window. And the, the personal desire wins every time. That defines that kind of superficial love, that fake love, that insincere counterfeit love. Paul isn't speaking of that love here. Paul is speaking of that kind of natural love between brothers that will endure, that will last, that kind of love that won't betray you in the heat of adversity. Paul is speaking of Philadelphia. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, Proverbs says, "A a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's the kind of friend the Lord Jesus Christ is to us, amen? Sticks closer than a brother. That's the kind of brotherly love that should characterize our love for one another in the Lord's church. Someone who loves with Philadelphia um, loves another like that. Your love for me, right? You've expressed that to me and I'm grateful to the Lord for it. My love for you. I love you, I love this church. That love should take on something of the character, something of the quality of that love which you should naturally have for the members of your own family. And then it's because we are in the body of Christ. We've been born again, made a new creation. We've been brought into the household of God. And now, naturally, as a fruit of his spirit, that kind of love should exist between us we should love one another as though we were closer than blood because we are, right? We should love one another as those closer than blood, the one who sticks closer than a brother, if you will, because we are. In fact, Paul says in verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. It's interesting the word uh, there. The, the word translated kindly affectionate refers to another example of familial or family devotion. Philadelphia, referring to a brotherly love with phileo to love, adelphos meaning brother. Here it's phila storgos. It's a, a love that exists in the closest of family relationships. That word describes the loving devotion or the tender affection that should characterize the relationship between a mother and her child. The word that Paul uses here is the word for love that characterizes the quality of that love between a mother and her child. I can say from experience too, the love that a grandparent has for their grandkid. Right? It's, it's that kind of love, right? It's that kind of love. It's almost unexplainable. It's almost unexplainable. When my own daughters were born, I thought to myself, I would do anything. For, and, and they can't speak. They're hardly even looking at me. They forget me 10 minutes after I've left. They're so little but I would do anything for them. Paul is speaking of that kind of love, that kind of kindly, tender affection, the kind of affection that exists between the closest relationships, the closest relationships on earth, the closest relationships that human beings experience on this side of eternity. Those relationships, that kind of love should characterize the kind of love that we have for one another in the church. Be kindly affectionate. The loving devotion that should characterize the relationship between a husband and his wife. Paul is referring to an intimate love, a devoted love, a committed love, a tender love, an affectionate love, um, an affectionate delight. Our love for one another in the church is to be characterized by that love demonstrated and then experienced in the closest and most affectionate of all earthly physical relationships. And the practical expressions of our love for one another in the church should demonstrate that character. That's what Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It's a high calling, amen? But that's what we're being called to. We should love one another in those ways. And there's a sense in which that is natural as a fruit of his spirit. But what's interesting in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, is that this kind of love is being given to us as a command. So the exhortation, that indicative statement, love without hypocrisy, and now be kindly affectionate toward one another with a brotherly love, these statements carry the weight of an imperative in Romans chapter 12. They come to us in the form of a command. Now in one sense, that should come naturally, much the way it comes naturally to the members of a family. But listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9. Listen to this. Paul says, but concerning brotherly love, there it is again, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So in that sense, Paul is saying it should come naturally. God saves you. Think with me for a moment. Okay. God saves you. God makes of you a new creation. He takes out that stony, hard, sinful heart. He replaces it with a, a tender, responsive affectionate heart of faith, a heart of flesh. He indwells you with his spirit. God then goes work, goes to work in you, both the will and to do according to his good pleasure. And God teaches you by his spirit to love one another, to love your brothers. So in that sense, if that natural familial love for your spiritual brethren in the family, in the family of God, is not there, if that kind of spirit wrought love in your heart for your brothers is not present, then it's an indication that God hasn't done those things, that God hasn't indwelt you with his spirit, that God hasn't taken out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh that God isn't at work in you to willing to do according to his good pleasure. In other words, that, that kind of natural familial love among the brothers in the body of Christ is an indication of genuine conversion, an indication that you've been born again, an indication you've been made a new creation. Listen to John, with respect to that thought, okay? With that thought on your mind, and that kind of love is a fruit of conversion. Listen to John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. John says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Does that mean that we have to practice righteousness in order to be right with God, in order to be saved by God? That's not what John is saying. What John is saying is that a practiced form of righteousness, a practical righteousness, is the evidence that someone has been born again and is a child of God, right? That's what John is saying. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence that we've been converted. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is is he who does not love his brother. It's the same principle. The same principle applies. The one who does not love his brother gives evidence that he doesn't have a changed heart. He's not been made a new creation. He's not been born again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Do you want to know that you've passed from death to life? One of the indications that you've passed from death to life, is that natural philadelphos, Philadelphia, that natural kind of brotherly love that you have for the brethren in the body of Christ. He, John says, goes on to say, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Becomes a test of conversion, doesn't it? A proof of conversion. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty clear. So in one sense, in one sense, love for your brothers in the household of God should come as naturally to you as loving the natural born members of your own physical family. It should come naturally to you. You've been born again into a new new family. In the household of God, we're related to one another. We're really, we're going to spend eternity together. (laughs) We're related to each other in the body of Christ. We share a similar renewed nature. In the language of verse five, we are one body and individually members of one another. That's not simply a forensic reality. That's not simply a semantic reality. There's something of spiritual significance to that fact. We are individually members of one another. There's a very real sense of sharing together a kindred spirit. In Mark chapter 10, Peter says to the Lord, right? Peter says to the Lord, see, Lord, look, we've left all to follow you. We've left all to follow you. The Lord answers Peter and says, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one. Who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Those earthly physical bonds may have been lost when you set your heart and mind to follow Christ, to follow the Lord. The Lord says that's okay. The Lord says elsewhere, that's to be expected. What you have lost will be restored to you multiple times over. And not just quantitatively, but qualitatively, right? What you've lost will be restored multiple times over. How is that possible? It's because we're in God's family. We're in God's family. And that's a very real family relationship that has now been created, authored by God. So that is real. That is real. It's not just words. That is real. And there will be a real sensed experience of that fact. You'll even sense a closer bond with another Christian often. but a closer bond with another Christian than you will with a lost member of your physical family. How I many of you can say that you've experienced that before? A closer bond with a brother or sister in Christ, a closer bond with them than you have with the members of your own household. That's going to, the lost members of your own household, that's going to be true. So there's a sense, again, there's a sense in which all of that comes naturally. It comes naturally. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of conversion. It's a work of God in your heart. However, however, What Paul is giving to us here in Romans chapter 12 is a command. Paul is giving us an imperative. Paul is, you might think, essentially saying, do that which is natural. (laughs) But there's more to it than that. It may come naturally, but Paul is giving us the weight here of a command. Paul said, listen, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, that we are taught by God to love one another. And he suggests with that, that love for one another will be the natural fruit of the Spirit's work in your heart and mind. But then he goes on to say, in that text, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So Paul is then commanding them to increase more and more in what Paul is saying comes naturally to the Christian. Well, how do we do that? Paul commands us here in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with a brotherly love. Be kindly affectionate and do that with a brotherly love. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we, how do we increase more and more? Paul certainly isn't commanding us to gin up more of the feeling, is he? Is that what Paul is commanding? I should just sit back and I should try really hard. Mm, I want to love them more, right? No, it's like, I want to feel it. Paul is not commanding us to gin up the feeling or to, to gin up the emotion. It's important to understand here, again, that feelings and emotions, when it comes to love, feelings and emotions are a response to thought and understanding. Feelings and emotions are response to thought, a response to understanding, a response to what we believe, what we value. Feelings and emotions are a response. It would be insincere, wouldn't it? It would be hypocritical to put on some mask of emotion without the underlying presence of a real and sincere love. I right? to put on the mask of emotion, the mask of feelings. So Paul isn't, calling us here to gin up the feeling. What is Paul referring to? Paul isn't thinking emotionally, Paul is thinking practically. Be kindly affectionate to one another with a brotherly love, think practically. The brotherly love that you will have naturally for the members of your spiritual family, that brotherly love should manifest itself more and more practically as you grow in faith and as you serve the body. As you grow in your thought, as you grow in your understanding, as you grow in your knowledge of these spiritual realities, that natural affection that you have for the members of your spiritual family should grow and increase more and more. And that is a command. Increase more and more in those things. What Paul is essentially saying is this. Grow in your understanding of that truth. Inform your understanding of those things. Inform your faith. How do we do that? We go to God's word. God's revealed word. The only way that we know these things is because God has revealed them to us. The only thing we know, the only reason that we know anything about, anything about this love is because God has revealed this love to us on the pages of scripture. And he has done so preeminently in the example of his own son who shed his own blood at the cross in love for you and I, right? That's how we know love because he is love, right? He loved us and so we love him. He has shown us what love is. The only way that we do this is by going to his word. That's the command. Increase more and more in the practical outworking of this natural familial love and devote yourself more and more to one another with a brotherly love. This command is obeyed then in proportion to the degree in which you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. The one who doesn't know his word has no understanding of these things, cannot love in this way. Can love in this way. They're, we love analogously to begin with. We don't love equivalently with God. We don't love univocally, use that word, with God. We love analogously to God. We love, in the ways that we love, if you're a godly Christian brother or sister pursuing Christ-like love, we love in those ways, because we've been taught to love. We've been shown to love in those ways. And that comes through the word of God. It is love naturally a fruit of his spirit, but the way that that natural fruit of the spirit grows is as our mind, as our hearts are informed, as our faith is informed by the revealed word of God, which includes the greatest example of love ever given, which is the love of Jesus Christ for his own. We must be renewed in our thinking we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the, the command to love one another, to be, to be kindly affectionate to one another with a brotherly love, that command is obeyed in proportion to the degree to which we have been transformed by the renewing of our mind. I commend that to your meditation as you think on that. I think on what we know, what we understand, what we embrace through faith, and allow that to inform your love. As you think, as you learn, as you grow in your understanding of these truths, as you grow in your understanding of how Christ himself has loved you, as you grow, as you appreciate those things, as you embrace those things through faith, as you further understand that, the more that you will increase in your own love for your brothers, the more that your love, that natural affection between brothers in the body, the more that that natural affection will grow toward one another. The more that you you will work that out in practical ways, the more that kind of affection will show up in the way that you relate to one another. The more that you pray for the Spirit of God to inform that understanding of love. The more that you pray for the Spirit of God to fill your heart with that kind of love for your spiritual family. The more that you will increase and abound in that grace. It's very practical, isn't it? Very practical. The command implies responsibility. You can't say to yourself, right, just let go and let God. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. You can't just sit back and wait. I'm just going to sit back. If God wants me to increase my love, he's going to increase my love. There's a certain element of truth to that statement. (laughs) But what does the scripture say? The, The God who is sovereign over the ends has also appointed the means. And the Bible commands us to grow and increase in this kind of love. We have the command suggests responsibility. We have to work at this. We have to pursue this. This is something that we can and we should grow in. We can't take it for granted. and We can't receive the grace of God in vain. Now often, often, we grow in love by considering examples that are given to us. I've mentioned the example of the Lord Jesus Christ already multiple times as we've been talking. Um, often we grow by considering faithful and faith-filled examples of this kind of love. And there are examples in Scripture that are given to us for that very purpose. Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is taking up a collection for needy saints in Jerusalem. He's taken up a collection from a group of Christians in Macedonia, the Macedonians. Why would the Macedonians determine to give, they were a poor people, why would they determine to give out of their own poverty for saints, for believers in Jerusalem who were in need? Why would they do that? Love love. So it's not only a text about giving, it's a text ultimately about about love. Paul is taking up this collection. He's urging the saints in Corinth to abound, to abound in their love for their brothers and sisters in need in Jerusalem. And he's urging the Corinthians to abound in this kind of love. Not merely to abound in the emotion, right? Not merely to abound in word. Hey, you guys in Jerusalem, we're thinking about you praying for you this morning, but not do anything, right? Not just to love in word, but to love in deed, to love in truth, to love with a sincere love, love without hypocrisy. He's urging them not to simply abound in the emotion of love or the feelings associated with love, but to abound in the practical manifestations or demonstrations of their love. The fruit will give evidence of a healthy and thriving root, right? If the root of that love is in their heart, a biblical love, a Christ-like love, then that love is going to manifest itself in fruit. And fruit gives evidence of the root. So in urging the Corinthians to give as an expression of their love, he points to the example of the Macedonians. Look at verse one. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That kind of love exhibited by the churches in Macedonia was called a grace of God. Where did that love come from? It came from God. It was the grace of God to them. Paul makes known the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, too, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, the abundance of their deep poverty, abounded in the riches of their liberality. In the midst of a trial of affliction, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of poverty, their joy, their gratitude was overflowing, and it abounded in their generosity toward the saints in Jerusalem. It abounded. Put yourself in their shoes, just for an example, right? Going through a tremendous difficulty, a very difficult trial. They were impoverished. They had lost everything. And in the midst of that, their joy and their gratitude, in that hardship, that's convicting, isn't it? That's convicting. In the midst of a very difficult trial, their joy and their gratitude toward God overflowed in this generous and abundant This abundant act of love manifested toward other believers in another city, in another place, right? Manifested in their demonstrations of love toward the saints in Jerusalem. Verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, overjoyed, cheerful, wanted to. Such that, verse 4, they were imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the, of the ministering to the saints. That was the way they saw their giving. Their giving was fellowship. This love, this act of love and giving to the saints in Jerusalem was an act of familial love. It was fellowship among the saints. Paul says, and not only as we had hoped, they gave beyond what we had hoped. They first gave of themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. This group in Macedonia was a a loving group, right? They were a devoted group, a committed group, a joyful group. They were a generous group, a cheerful group, a willing group. Verse six, so we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. In other words, Corinthians, let this grace be known among you as it was among the Macedonians, right? Love by their example. May this kind of love be found among you also. Verse seven. But as you abound in everything, you're abounding in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us. See that you abound in this grace also. Don't let it fall in vain. Abound in this grace also. And then notice what Paul says in verse eight. I speak not by commandment. Paul didn't want this to come across as court-ordered love. (laughs) He didn't want this to come across as official love. He's not commanding them per se. He's appealing to them for the sake of Christian, brotherly, affectionate, spirit wrought, Christ exalting love. He's appealing to them for that reason. This is not court ordered love. Paul says, I speak not by commandment, verse eight, but rather I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others interesting isn't it is your love free from the stain of hypocrisy is it sincere the love of the macedonians certainly was paul is commending their love as sincere paul is commending their love as free from the stench of hypocrisy Brothers and sisters, what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do, and what he is calling us to do by implication, is to see that our love shares the same quality and character as their love. Their love free from hypocrisy. Their love sincere. And what Paul is calling you and I to do, in all of our relationships, but particularly in our relationships among the body of Christ, As brothers and sisters in the Lord, Paul is calling us to see to it that our love shares the same quality and character as their love. Does that mean we need to give as they give? Not necessarily. Not just in this one opportunity to give to the saints in Jerusalem, but in every way that our love is to manifest itself, in every way that we are to demonstrate love toward one another. Does your love... Demonstrate that kind of character, that kind of quality that was exhibited by the Macedonians when they gave of themselves, gave out of their poverty, gave in their joy, gave in their gratitude. When they gave willingly, does your love exhibit that kind of quality? Paul is holding it up to the example set by the Macedonians. And he says, I'm testing your love by the sincerity of others, by the diligence of others. For you know, and then he brings up the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of our Lord Jesus Christ to you was certainly, without hypocrisy, amen, was certainly sincere. Well, let's see then if your love, if my love, shares the same quality, the same character as the Lord's love for us. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He gave everything for you not counting equality with God, something to be grasped for, something to be, you know, clung to. But he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a slave and came in the appearance of men. It's interesting when Paul says in verse eight that he is testing the sincerity of their love by the example of the Macedonians. It's interesting. The word that Paul uses there for sincerity is a word that was used to distinguish distinguish a legitimate or a natural born son from an illegitimate son. That natural born son was said to be sincere, was said to be legitimate, true, genuine. that's the word that Paul uses then for our love. Is that love that is being demonstrated, is it that sincere love, that genuine love that should exist between the members of God's household, the members of Christ's body? Is it true? Is it genuine? Is it sincere? So Paul is asking, Word came to be used of that which is genuine or true. So is their love for their brothers and sisters true? Is it the natural or familial love that is kindled by a kindred bond? Is it true? Paul says, I'm going to prove it to be true. I'm going to test the genuineness or the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. That word for prove there is the word dokimazo. It means, it means that it's going to be tested It's going to be approved through testing. Approved through testing. So Paul's going to test it. He's going to test the love of the Corinthians and see if it is approved through that test. And the test that Paul is going to use now in the church at Corinth is this need of the saints in Jerusalem. There's this need. What is the character and quality of your love, Paul asks. There's a need. What is the character and quality of your love, there's an op- we can say that among, amongst ourselves. Here's an opportunity to love. What is the character and quality of your love? And we don't need to merely wait for opportunity. Brothers and sisters, we're commanded in Scripture to take opportunity. Take opportunity to love. What is the character and quality of your love? Hold it up by the example of the Macedonians. Hold it up by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Does your love for your brothers and sisters in this church, can it be characterized by the same quality as that given by the Macedonians, as that demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ for us? Paul says, I'm going to prove it to be so. Paul is not setting this up as a competition. Right? Paul, this isn't isn't loving by competition. This is loving through imitation. There's a big difference. This is love through imitation. Their example becomes our incentive. Their example becomes our motivation to love as they did. There's something um, just tremendously appealing about it, isn't there? Haven't, haven't you thought to yourself before? Has this thought ever crossed your mind? I want to love like that. I want to serve the Lord like that. I want to love the Lord Jesus Christ. You see preeminent examples, either on the pages of scripture or walking around flesh and blood. And you say to yourself, I want to love the Lord like that. I want to serve the Lord like that. Paul is saying that's not a, that's not a bad thought. <laughs> that's love through imitation. Paul says, it's Philippians chapter four, uh, Philippians chapter three, end of chapter four the things that you saw in me, right? You have them as an example. Note those who so walk, you have them as an example. Paul holds up these examples and tells us, walk like they do, love like they do, give like they do, think like they do, right? Worship like they do, serve like they do. We have them as our examples. Our greatest example is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. His example, isn't his example to you tremendous motivation to love. Tremendous motivation to love. Paul says again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the love of Christ compels me, compels me, that if one died for all, then all died. And all died, they should no longer live for themselves, but live for him, right? It should compel us to love in that way. Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it's according to the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, thinking upon, meditating upon, the mercies of God, embracing through faith, the mercies of God, in consideration of the mercies of God, then why wouldn't you want to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him? Paul calls it the reasonable service of worship, the only rational service of worship. Any lesser service of worship is irrational, unreasonable. Paul calls it logical there. The word there is Logical. These become our incentives to love. The true test of love, you see then, it's not feeling or emotion. You see how far removed from that this is? It's not feeling or emotion. Feelings and emotions will certainly follow in response. They certainly will be there. They certainly will follow. But the true test of love is action. Action. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. How do we know love? Because of what Jesus Christ did. And speaking of action, affectionate action, loving action, willing action, voluntary action. And Paul, uh, John goes on to say, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. He died in our place as our substitute, bearing the, the sin and the shame that we, the, he bore the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin, bore our condemnation. He laid down his life for us and he has hung there as a testimony, if you will, as a tribute to divine love, to divine grace, divine compassion, divine mercy. And then John says, in light of that love, that being our exemplar, therefore we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to love our brothers with the character and the quality of that love. You see John doing the same thing that Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians 8. But, verse 17, whoever has this world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's a rhetorical question, it means it doesn't. And it doesn't only apply to goods and physical needs. It applies in many ways. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, let us love in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. It becomes an evidence, if you will, of our conversion becomes an evidence that the spirit of God is at work in our hearts because this kind of love doesn't come naturally to us apart from salvation. There is a natural love that exists between brothers in a physical household. But the love that Paul is talking about, the love that John is talking about, the love that the Bible enjoins is a love that goes beyond that kind of love. It's not natural to a lost person. It's not natural to those who have not been renewed, not been made a new creation, to those who have not been born again. It becomes natural to those who have been born again in Jesus Christ. The love for one another, to which Paul calls us then, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, is not a love that is merely expressed in words. It is love without hypocrisy. It's a love that is devoted. It is a love that endures. It's a love that is constant. It's a love that is attentive gentle tender kind compassionate caring it seeks for opportunities to express itself it seeks for it pursues opportunities to demonstrate itself it's a love that is discriminating think about that with me for a moment it's a love that's discriminating paul says elsewhere to do good to all men what especially to those of the household of faith it's a love that is discriminating especially to your brothers and sisters in the church It's a love that is discriminating in the sense that our love for one another in this church is to be of the highest quality and character. To to be compared with that love that the bridegroom of the church demonstrates toward his own bride. It is to be a kindly affectionate love, a brotherly love. It's a love that manifests itself in verse 10 in honor giving preference to one another. It's a love that prefers another. It's a love that does not lag in diligence, does not lag in zeal. It's not lazy, but rather it's a love that is fervent in spirit, enthusiastic. It's a love that's ardent, that's eager. It's given to one another in service to the Lord. It's a love that rejoices in hope. It's a love that is patient through tribulation. It's a love that continues steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality more on all of that next week if the lord allows it's a love that demonstrates or manifests itself in these ways brothers and sisters this is our family and that's not those aren't mere words that's not (sighs) that's not said or meant in the same way that a bunch of ladies at a bingo club might say that, you know, this is our family. (laughs) It's, It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And it's not the same thing as our physical family either. It goes well beyond that reality. We cannot be merely fair weather friends. The scriptures do not allow for it. We cannot settle for it. We cannot love that way. We are not to be fair weather friends. We have to love. If you're a Christian and dwelt by the Spirit, I know that's what you want. We want to love in that way. I don't want my love for you to be passing or temporary or waxing or waning. We can't be fair weather friends. I know that you don't feel like it all the time. I don't feel like it all the time we cannot be fair weather friends. We are sinful people. Our love for one another is going to wax and wane at times. Our love for one another may cool. We have a responsibility to acknowledge that our love has cooled and to do something about it. Pursue, pursuing that love that Christ has demonstrated toward us. We cannot allow it to stand. We stand. We cannot be fair weather friends. That kind of love cannot be governed by our feelings. Although we don't feel like it all the time. It's not governed by feelings. It's not governed by our emotions. That kind of love is fueled and motivated by our commitment to the Lord because of the love which He has shown us. It is governed, it is regulated by His word. And we should be in pursuit of that kind of love. It cannot lack in diligence. It's coming up. It cannot lack in zeal. It must be fervent, it must be ardent, it must be enthusiastic. It's a love that begins with your love for and devotion to Jesus Christ. If your love for and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ waxes cold, what do you think that's going to mean to your love for and commitment to his body? How can you love your brothers whom you do see when you don't love him? You right? can turn that around. When you don't love him, whom you don't see. <laughs> you say you love him and you don't love your brothers and sisters in the church. That one is a liar, John would say. It begins with your love for and devotion to Jesus Christ. It begins with your commitment to be a living sacrifice. This is your acceptable, your reasonable, your rational, your logical service of worship to love in this way. It begins with your understanding of, your appreciation for, the love that Christ has shown to you. Do you glory in the fact of his love for you? Do you revel in that reality? If you've lost a sense of that, it's going to affect your love for others in the body. It will. So we need to to live with a constant appreciation of and embrace of the love that Christ has for us. As you're glorying in that, as you're reveling in his love for you, that we understand through the gospel, you will more and more, Increase in your love for one another. If he has loved you in this way, then love others with the same love with which he has loved you. Test and prove your love by his sincerity. Test and prove your love by his example. Note those who so walk. You have them as your example. Paul is calling for an extraordinarily high view of love this is an extraordinarily high calling matched only by the extraordinary ease with which many professing christians tend to abandon this kind of love for selfish reasons let it never be named among us let it never be be named among us they say i love you as they're walking out the door let it never be the case with you dear brother dear sister let love be without hypocrisy. Let this love increase among us more and more. It has to. Let this love increase among us. And pray with me. Be praying with me that we may abound in this grace of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this admonition. Thank you for the tremendous example the glorious example that we have in the person and work of our lord jesus christ help us lord by your spirit to love in this way let our love be without hypocrisy you're the one who authors this love you're the one who works it by your spirit in our heart and mind you're the one who transforms transforms us and renews us uh, in our minds uh, through your word by your spirit we pray that you do that work in us that we can't do for ourselves strengthen us by your spirit to pursue this kind of love, pursue conformity with Christ for your glory, for our good, and for his eternal praise and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening.